this week on the Holy Bold Podcast. We have our first um, Doctrine of the Week segment, in which we are going to discuss the doctrine of the perspicuity of Scripture. And we're going to talk a little bit about why some people pretend that they don't know what the Bible is about. And here's a hint. I think they do it because of cowardice. Welcome to the Holy Bold Podcast. My name is TJ Lucasen. You've maybe heard of this famous poem, more like a little doggerel, uh, The Six, Man of, Six Men of Hindustan. And it's this little poem that there's six men of Hindustan, and they're, all, they're blind men, and they're all feeling around this elephant, and one man touches the, the side of the elephant. He says, it's a wall, and another one pulls at his ear and says, it's a fan, and another one grabs his trunk and says, it's uh, a rope. And all around, six blind men grope and try to understand what it is that they're touching, and none of them gets it. And the point of this little poem is that this is what we're like with religion. We all kind of are blind and we sort of think we understand that it's a fan or a rope or a wall and nobody really knows for sure. But of course you understand where that poem and its attractive logic breaks down. What if the elephant speaks? What if the elephant says, Hello? I'm an elephant. No! You're a paradox. No, I'm really an elephant. No, I think you're a peacock. No, I'm, I'm an elephant. But this is a wall. It's my side. It's my trunk. What is it then if you refuse to know the elephant as an elephant? Is it humility or is it because we are hard of hearing? Wow, that clip you just heard is Kevin DeYoung, and uh, that was from a sermon that he preached called uh, The Clarity of Scripture. Um, that There is a link to the sermon in the show notes that I would highly encourage you to listen to. Um, I did uh, draw a bit on what he said in that sermon uh, to produce this episode, so uh, I think he's a great resource, and that is a particularly uh, useful sermon. And, uh, so if you couldn't tell from the introduction and then from that clip, uh, today we're going to be talking about the, the doctrine of the clarity or perspicuity of scripture. And I think that this is a, a really timely, uh, doctrine to be discussing, um, because I think we are currently at a point kind of in, in church history and particularly uh, in American culture where uh, there's a weapon that's kind of being formed against us, to use biblical language, and that weapon essentially is, is an assault against uh, confidence in what the Bible has to say. So, so um, something you'll see often. I think is, is just kind of this idea of when, you know, so you've probably seen this happen in your own life. You know, one person will, uh, say something confidently. They will assert that the Bible says 
X, Y, or Z, you know, whatever it might be. And then uh, a regular common sort of standard uh, rebuttal that you might see against a confident assertion of what Scripture says is you can't be sure that that's what the Bible means. This is something that you'll see happen uh, sadly often. Rather, so often, rather than, you know, uh, analyzing the argument that a person is making based on Scripture, you know, uh, say that the person asserts they they believe in, uh, you know, uh, Arminianism. You know, they believe that, that every person has the libertarian free will to choose God. Um, you know, one possible thing that you could say against that person would be to say, well, you know, you can't be sure that that's what the Bible means by what it says. There's no way to know for sure. A better way that you could, uh, you know, uh, critique that person's doctrine would be to show in Scripture why their doctrine is wrong, uh, rather than uh, assaulting the the doctrine of the clarity of Scripture. And I think that's what we see happen so often nowadays. And so that's really what this episode is going to be about. That. Uh, for some reason, our Christian dialogue, uh, our Christian discussion around uh, moral issues and around doctrinal issues has devolved to the point where rather than discussing the evidence, the, the scriptural evidence for the various points of view, we have decided to uh, avoid controversy, avoid uh, discussion altogether by essentially just saying that, we can't really know for sure what the Bible says. You know, there are many uh, interpretations, and so we can't be certain which one is right. And fundamentally, what that is, is a rejection of the clarity of Scripture. We believe that Scripture can be understood. We believe that there is a right interpretation of Scripture and a wrong, many wrong interpretations of Scripture. And, and and what that means is that we must work to find the correct interpretation. And, and the problem is that today so many people want to just discourage any sort of of dialogue or debate uh, because they think that it is inherently disunifying to have debate. Uh, and, and they would rather just say everybody can have their own interpretation and they are all generally uh, equal, or at least we have to treat them all as equal because according to this viewpoint, we can't be sure who is right and who is wrong. So I I, uh, I found a, a really good example of this. Actually, today I was working a bit on the podcast and decided to take a break and scroll Twitter for a few minutes. And uh, I came across this tweet. Um, so there's a, a university uh, a Christian university, and one of their professors recently tweeted uh, about his affirmation of the LGBTQ lifestyle, uh, or at least LGBTQ people. He tweeted something about how much he loves them and how welcome they are at this particular Christian university. Um, and obviously at most Christian Christian institutions, uh, people who are living in unrepentant sin uh, are called to repent, and if they do not repent, then they are shown the door, which is 
proper. Uh, we are called to uh, separate ourselves to, as Paul puts it in 1 Corinthians chapter 5, to purge the evil person from among us. We are to have nothing to do with people who call themselves Christians and yet live in unrepentant sin. And so a lot of people, where they saw this tweet that this guy had posted and they began to question him and to ask him, you know, <laughs> you know, uh, what's going on here? Why, why is this university affirming direct, blatant, open sin? And uh, so I want to walk through a few of these um, tweets. There was essentially one uh, exchange of tweets that I really want to look at because I think one of the gentlemen involved in this exchange of tweets, uh, I think that he really exemplifies the mindset that this whole podcast episode is really about and that I think we need to um, abandon this particular mindset and we need to adopt a more biblical one. So uh, I will read the tweets um, for those of you who are listening along. So when the, the this first gentleman, he saw the original tweet affirming homosexuality and saying that uh, LGBTQ people are welcome at the university and so this guy, he responds to the original tweet and he says, um, are there any other sins you affirm and love? And so he's pointing out, you know, as a Christian, you are called to hate sin. You are called to uh, hate what God hates. And God calls the whole LGBTQ uh, worldview practice, uh, he calls it an abomination. And so this guy asked the question, you know, are there any other sins that you want to affirm, you know, while you're out here affirming all these sins? Uh, I think it's a relatively fair question. Um, and so then a guy responds to that. Uh, and here is what he says. And this is the tweet that I think really sort of captures, uh, encapsulates, you might say, uh, the the mindset that this episode is all about. So the, the response goes like this. A guy says, it's not settled that God opposes homosexuality. That is a popular interpretation of a couple key passages. Yes, but hardly the only reasonable one. I'd be careful of being loud about something that scripture is not loud about. So. We see this uh, this gentleman. I get the impression from the profile picture. Uh, it's this uh, this guy, and he uh, essentially his argument is uh, the theology. You know, you'll hear people say things like, "Well, the science isn't settled on topic X or topic you know Y, whatever it might be." Uh, the topic or the the science isn't settled. Well, that's kind of the language that he uses here with with this topic of homosexuality. He says it's not settled that God opposes homosexuality. He affirms, like he says, yes, that is a popular interpretation of a couple key passages, he says, but uh, he argues it's not the only reasonable ex uh, explanation or interpretation. Then he, he kind of gives his like moral point at the end. He says, I'd be careful of being loud about something that scripture is not loud about this is i think kind of the mantra of many modern christians essentially they they kind of they take shelter almost uh in this idea that scripture isn't clear 
Because as long as Scripture isn't clear, then they don't have to stand up for the things that Scripture stands up for. They don't have to be clear themselves about the things that Scripture is clear about. You know, there's this common saying that where uh, where the Bible speaks, God speaks. Where Scripture speaks, God speaks. That is a very common phrase. Well, for these people, they would say, you know, Scripture doesn't really speak in that many areas. Or at least that where Scripture does speak, it's not clear enough for us to be certain about what it means. And so what we need to do is not be loud about something scripture is not loud about according to them. And essentially uh, what I, how I understand this um, and I, I think it's hard to see it any other way, especially with a topic like homosexuality that is as clearly spelled out in scripture as it is, you know, it is, it is condemned as abomination, multiple different places in scripture. It is never spoken of positively. It is never given as a positive example. There is no example in scripture of a homosexual uh, marriage or relationship. That is a positive thing. It is only ever spoken of negatively. So it's, it's one of the clearest examples But I think the reason that people want to act like scripture isn't clear is because if scripture is not clear, then they don't have to stand up for the things that scripture stands up for. And so this brings us to our our thesis statement for the episode. Uh, Let me put away the, the tweets here so you can see it. If you're watching the video, here it is. The thesis statement for uh, this episode of the podcast goes like this. Many Christians profess to believe in the inspiration, infallibility, and inerrancy of Scripture, but they deny Scripture's sufficiency by rejecting its clarity. So, so here's what I think most Christians basically do. They, they will uh, happily, they will enthusiastically affirm, of course, Scripture is inspired by God. Every word is breathed out by God himself. Of course, it's infallible. Of course, it's inerrant. You know, it has no errors. There's nothing wrong with the Bible. But they destroy Scripture's sufficiency, Scripture's ability to actually address things in life, in culture, in the world by rejecting its clarity. So they would say, yes, of course, Scripture comes from God. God is the source, uh, and because God is the source, it's infallible, it's inerrant. However, our ability to interpret it is the problem. And because we cannot interpret it properly, we cannot apply it to ourselves or to the world or to the culture we should not, you know, be too brash about calling out sin because who knows, maybe our interpretation is wrong. We should not be too exclusive in our doctrinal statements because who knows, we might be wrong. What we should do is, and you can see this in so many churches, essentially what, what so many people do is they go for sort of the bare minimum version of Christianity. They go for the lowest common denominator version of Christianity. What you'll see if you look at many, many, many churches' websites and you go to the page and find their statement of faith, what you'll find is essentially the absolute 
bare minimum that needs to be believed to even be a Christian. You know, so essentially all that's on the church website is, you know, maybe a sentence about the nature of scripture. You know, they'll probably have something that says the scriptures are inspired by God, something like that. They'll have a statement on the Trinity. They'll have a, a statement on the, the divinity of Christ. They might, if you're, you know, if, if it's a kind of good one, they might have a statement on the divinity of the Holy Spirit. Uh, they'll have a statement on the Trinity. They'll have a statement on salvation that is as vague as possible, you know, essentially just as people who believe will be saved. They don't care to elaborate at all on how, you know, where belief comes from. Is faith a gift from God or is faith something that, that every person has the, the capability to exercise? Uh, and then they'll have some sort of very vague statement about the end times. It says, you know, we believe Jesus is going to come back and he's going to judge. And it's, you know, and all of that's true. And hopefully they get all those things right. However, they keep their statements of faith as vague and as you know, non-offensive as possible because either they have been convinced by poor teachers that scripture is unclear or because they are poor teachers who want to convince other people that scripture is unclear so that they don't have to stand up, you know, uh, dogmatically for the things that scripture says. And so that is why our doctrine of the week for this week is the doctrine of the perspicuity or the clarity of Scripture. Scripture is clear. And because Scripture is clear, it demands that we stand up for what it says. And if we will not do that, then we should hesitate to call ourselves Christians. Jesus makes it abundantly clear. That those who deny him before men will be denied by him before the Father. And so when we deny the teachings of our Savior before men, we should tremble. We should be fearful and we should repent. I'm not saying there's no hope. I'm not saying people are condemned because of this. But I am saying that they must repent of that. So... Welcome to the Doctrine of the Week. So, this week, we're going to be talking about the uh, perspicuity or clarity of Scripture. Uh, this segment, Doctrine of the Week, we will often address uh, doctrines like this one that I think are especially uh, relevant to you know, what's going on in the church in our day. It's not going to be like a, a systematic walk through every important Christian doctrine. It's just going to be the ones that I think happen to be most relevant uh, to the issues that the church is facing here and now. Um, you saw I opened up the uh, the podcast with that clip from uh, Kevin DeYoung in his sermon, uh, The Clarity of Scripture. And um, I think that that was a, a really helpful clip and a really helpful sermon overall because he he broaches a topic that I think is especially useful and he does it right kind of at the very end of that clip. He does it a few other times throughout the sermon uh, if you watch the whole thing, but right at the end of that clip he broaches a topic because um, one of the things that I think you'll see happen and part of the reason I, it's worth addressing this topic I think 
is that, and I've talked about this a little bit in, in previous episodes of the podcast, um, but one of the things you'll see happen very often when people uh, begin discussing doctrine is you'll see this, this weaponization of, of humility. Um, and he commented on the end, at the end of that. So he, he talked about the elephant and how, you know, if the elephant speaks, then we need to be, you know, if you want to know what the elephant is and the elephant starts speaking, you should probably listen to what the elephant has to say. And if even after the elephant has spoken to you, you continue to insist you know, because all you can feel is the side of it. And so you think the elephant's like a wall. So you continue to insist the elephant is a wall, even though the elephant itself is telling you that it's an elephant. You know, that's not humility. That's not, you know, the the humility of saying, you know, all I can know is what's in front of me. That is actually uh, arrogance because you are, uh, you know, refusing to listen to the elephant himself. And this is, I think, what the kind of the predicament that many Christians find themselves in. We've been told that uncertainty is the same thing as humility. Like if if you want to be humble, you have to kind of have this ongoing uncertainty about what you believe. But but once you become too dogmatic, you know, once you really certainly believe the things that you believe, then you're not humble anymore. And so people kind of weaponize humility and they say, look, if you want to be humble, then that means you kind of need to hold hold as much of your doctrine as possible very loosely. And you need to kind of always have this baseline assumption that you're you're probably wrong about the stuff you believe. And really what that is, is that is a rejection of the clarity of Scripture. It's a rejection uh, of the ability of God to reveal himself, you know, obviously in that, that metaphor, the, the metaphor with the elephant and the six men of Hindustan, the, the metaphor is that God is the elephant. And therefore, you know, if, if it were a God who would not speak to us, then yes, we would be left with our fumbling hands, you know, feeling against the elephant to try to determine what it is, but that's not who God is. God has spoken. God has revealed himself. God has made himself known through the written word. And because of that, because he has made himself known, it is the height of arrogance to disregard what God has revealed about himself in order to put forward your own theories or to to choose, you know, sort of the inoffensive, I'm just going to say nothing route. That is the height of arrogance because God himself has revealed himself to us. And so the the true humility is believing and proclaiming what God says about himself regardless of what how the world might react to us obeying him. That is that is what humility actually looks like when it comes to doctrine, when it comes to moral issues. It looks like obeying what God has to say, even though the world might hate us for doing so. And um, a big kind of driving factor for me choosing to do this episode, you know, this week, I could have done an episode like this any week. Um, but recently, I've kind of been reflecting on on just my own story, um, because I, I was asked recently to speak at a um, kind of like a youth event. Um, at a, at a school, the school that I work at, 
Um, they asked me to come speak to the high school students. Um, and usually at this particular event, the, the guest speaker generally shares at least some amount of their testimony kind of mixed in with whatever uh, main topic that they're actually talking about. And so I was thinking a little bit about my story and just kind of reflecting on, uh, you know, the the path that God has brought me through. Um, and so I graduated university in 2015 um, and immediately, actually a few months before I graduated, I started working at uh, a church out here in Washington State. And uh, it was a pretty kind of seeker-sensitive um kind of uh, just very minimalistic doctrinally sort of church. It was not very uh, thorough in its doctrinal statement, uh, but instead it, it kind of, you know, maybe to put it politely, uh, they like to keep things simple, to say the least, doctrinally. Um, and they were very much kind of on the leaning towards the uh, seeker-sensitive end of the spectrum. And uh, one of the biggest things that kind of stood out to me was just that they, they it seemed like one of their guiding principles, basically, was to avoid controversial issues. You know, I talked about churches with those minimalistic doctrinal statements, like this is one of those churches. Uh, and I worked there for a few years and really got, you know, to know a lot of people there, and I really got to know the the rest of the staff members, it was a large church, six campuses. Um, you know, so there are a lot of different staff people to know. I knew the, you know, the original founder of the church. Uh, you know, I knew I worked at one of the campuses. And so I knew like the, that campus pastor very closely. Um, and I just got to know all these different people and just kind of got to learn kind of what this church was about. And yeah, and it seemed like their sort of guiding principle was that their main goal was to avoid controversial issues. You know, they were they would they would have said, you know, we are all about discipleship. We're all about spiritual growth, and so we are not going to address, you know, those more controversial things and beyond what they had in their statement of faith. You know, I talked about very short, minimal statement of faith. They would have essentially said that and they did say, you know, this is not a direct quote, but uh, a very accurate paraphrase of what I've heard them say many times. Uh, essentially, they would argue their the statement of faith are the the things that they need to hold with a they would say closed hand, like they are non negotiable things that you have to believe. But then all the stuff outside the statement of faith, essentially, their belief about those issues were that they were open handed. They said. And what that meant was, you know, there are lots of different interpretations, lots of different beliefs on these different issues. And so we are not going to take a stance on these issues. Um, and so, you know, what that, that kind of panned out to is they had a very simplistic, minimalistic style of teaching. They would not address anything controversial. Uh, and, and if those sorts of controversial issues came up, they would do their best, you know, they were almost like politicians in a sense, uh, in, in how they would try to, you know, work their way around those questions without ever really having to address them fully head on. And, and uh, what I what I think I saw, 
Uh, and what I definitely experienced in that church was uh, just this, this lack of conviction about the clarity of God's word. See, if you're, if you're a pastor, if you're a preacher, and you believe that God's word is clear, then that means, of course, you have a duty, when, when, especially when you're asked, you know, to say what God says. You know, so, so uh, if somebody asks you, you know, about the topic of transgenderism, your duty as a pastor is to say what God says about that topic. That is your whole job as a pastor in that instance. And what I saw so often, and I've seen this in multiple contexts, not just this first church that I worked at, but what I've seen happen so often is simply that uh, people kind of have this default mode where they kind of step back and they essentially just assert that uh, scripture isn't clear on that issue. You know, whatever the issue might be, scripture's not clear on it. And so I don't, I'm not really going to take a stand and, and you can kind of believe what you want to believe about that. And, you know, we'll all find out who was right when we, when we get to heaven. Um, I have this clip that you, you've probably heard. Um, it was from a few years ago. I think it might maybe just over a year ago or something. Uh, Lauren Daigle, I think is how you pronounce her last name. Uh, she had, so she's a Christian singer, uh, if you're not familiar with her and she, I'm sure she's a good musician. I don't know. I don't really listen to her music. Uh, I really only know about her because of this interaction. And, uh, I think it is, it is characteristic of what we see happening with many people in the, the American evangelical church uh, surrounding issues that uh, any controversial issue, this is kind of the standard response that you will see many Christians adopt. And so, um, this little clip that I'm going to play for you, uh, was from an interview that happened about a week after Lauren Daigle had been on the Ellen show. So you probably know Ellen DeGeneres. Uh, she is, uh, a proud, homosexual woman. And so a lot of people kind of criticized Lauren Daigle and said, why did you go on this show? Like she, she's a proud homosexual. You're a Christian. You probably shouldn't be like showing that you support her or affirm her by going on her show. That's a little bit weird. Um, and so she got all this kind of criticism for a while. And then, then shortly after she was on Ellen, she had this radio interview uh, and in that interview, uh, this came up. So I'll play the clip for you. I have. I usually ask some tough questions. So is that all right if I ask you just a couple ones that are, are tougher, and you can let me know if you want to answer them? Okay, cool. Okay. Well, since we're talking about Ellen, do you feel that homosexuality is a sin? You know, I, I can't honestly answer on that in the sense of I have too many people that I love that they are homosexual. Um, I don't know. I actually had a conversation with someone last night about it, and I was like, I can't say one way or the other. I I'm not God. So when yeah. people when people ask questions like that, that's what my go-to is. Like I just say, read the Bible and find out for yourself. Because and when you find out, let me know. Because I'm learning too. So, 
I don't point that out because I think she is like uniquely sinful or uniquely wrong. I mean, well, I, I think, definitely think she's wrong, but I think the way that she went wrong in that clip is very, very common um, in the the church climate that we are currently in. You heard her say uh, essentially that the reason that she wouldn't, you know, pick a side or come down strongly one way or the other on the issue of homosexuality uh, she kind of gave two reasons. One was that she has a lot of friends who are homosexual, which she seems to kind of be openly admitting that that the fact that she has close relationships with homosexual people, you know, is influencing whether or not she thinks that's a sin. That is obviously wrong. Our Our determination of what is sinful should not come from our interactions with other people or, you know, what we see normalized in the world around us, our determination of what is sinful has to come from God, from his own character as revealed in scripture. So uh, it seems like she's kind of mixing that up. She is determining what is sin and what isn't via uh, the wrong source. But then the secondary thing that she says, and I think this is probably really her main issue uh, that she brought up, is she said, I'm not God. So she says, hey, the reason that I can't make a strong declaration one way or the other about whether or not homosexuality is sinful is because that's God's place. I'm not God, and so I can't make a decree like that. And that is, I would say, a very disappointing answer for a Christian to give. It's definitely not a sufficient answer. It does not properly reflect the Christian response to sin in the world. Uh, but it comes from this, this place of, um, I would say definitely ignorance. And the question really is, is it, is it, uh, purposeful ignorance or is it accidental ignorance? These seem to be, you know, the only options like does she does she not know what the Bible says about um, sin genuinely? Like, does she really has she really not been taught what what the Bible says about homosexuality or is this sort of a feigned ignorance? You know, she is it is it the case that she really does know what scripture says about homosexuality? Uh, but she's pretending not to know because if she states clearly what the Bible says on that particular issue, it probably won't be a great career move. I, you know, you have to you have to kind of ask yourself the question of is is this person, you know, stupid or is this person uh, a liar? Yeah, and neither of those are good options. But if you're if you're a Christian, you know, especially if you're at the point uh, as a Christian where you are a famous Christian music artist, like one one imagines that a person like her probably has a substantial amount of church involvement. You know, she probably grew up in the church to some extent. She probably, uh, you know, has a relatively substantial amount of. Uh, connection with and knowledge of Christian doctrine. Uh, so the question is like, is she, is she pretending not to know what the Bible says? Because, uh, if she states it clearly, she'll kind of be in trouble 
or does she really not know? Those are kind of the only options, obviously. Uh, and that's kind of up to you, I guess, to decide. Uh, however, both of them relate back to this topic of the the clarity or the perspicuity of Scripture. They both relate to this this question of, is Scripture clear? Because what we know is, like, de- the Bible definitely talks about homosexuality. It, it's not, you know, that's not a... It's not an unheard of topic in Scripture. Scripture uh, addresses it in multiple places, in multiple uh, uh, contexts, and in all of those contexts, Scripture is Scripture is clear that that homosexuality is an abomination. It is clear that homosexuality is sinful. It is it is clear that God does not approve of it. It is not God's design for mankind, and so. It is uh, scripture on the surface, at least, appears to be quite plain about what, you know, the the scriptural viewpoint of homosexuality. Uh, And so this topic comes down to really, can we like, is the average person, are you and I able to understand what scripture says? Can we understand it or uh, is it for some reason, in some way, indecipherable to us? So uh, that that I think kind of broaches this topic that I want to uh, address. And so we're going to begin, and I'm saying we're going to begin 37 minutes into a podcast. There we go. Uh, really, actually, I think we're probably at least halfway through. So there you are. But uh, we're going to begin the meat of the podcast by discussing just the the definition of this doctrine. Um, so the first the first place that I want to look to to help define this doctrine is uh, Charles Hodge. He has a systematic theology and uh, in volume one of his systematic theology, he addresses the doctrine of scripture. And uh, in that section, he talks about the doctrine of uh, of perspicuity. And so he says this, the Bible is a plain book. It is intelligible by the people and they have the right and are bound to interpret it for themselves so that their faith may rest on the testimony of scriptures and not on that of the church. Such is the doctrine of the Protestants on this subject. Uh, so the first two sentences, I think, are absolutely central to this doctrine of perspicuity. He says, I'll, I'll say them again, the Bible is a plain book. It is intelligible by the people. So essentially, the doctrine of perspicuity boils down to this idea that God spoke with the intention that his people could understand him. God spoke to us so that we could understand him know him, that that he would reveal himself to us. You know, we call scripture revelation. It is the revelation of God. God reveals himself through the written word of the prophets, the apostles, uh, to his people. And he does so in a way that is intelligible to us. We can, we can interpret it and we can come to the proper right conclusions about what his word 
means. We understand very clearly from Scripture that Christians, filled with the Holy Spirit, have everything we need to properly interpret Scripture. So we should never, we should never rely on this excuse of ignorance. Of course, there's going to be things like we're all still learning. So it's okay to say that's, you know, that's something I haven't studied yet. And so I'm not confident to assert, you know, the, the, uh, a conclusion on that particular doctrinal point. That's okay. But to, to function sort of as a matter of principle that, that scripture is unclear and that any conclusion I draw about it is suspect and likely wrong. That is not a Christian way of interacting with God's word. First Corinthians two twelve says now we have received not the spirit of the world, but the spirit who is from God that we might understand the things freely given us by God. God gave us his spirit for the purpose that we might. That is a purpose statement. We are given, we are filled with the Holy Spirit so that the Holy Spirit could illuminate for us the meaning of Scripture. God himself gives us the ability by dwelling in us. If you are a Christian, God literally dwells inside of you in the Holy Spirit. And by that Holy Spirit, you have the ability to know and interpret rightly and understand and apply the word of God. And so you must never treat the scripture like you can't understand it. And you especially shouldn't do that uh, on pretense. You know, you especially shouldn't pretend you don't understand the word in order to get out of uncomfortable situations or for your career or for your reputation. That is a that is a slap in the face to the God who died for you to do that. And so Christians don't. Christians don't do that. And Christians who have done that must repent. They must quit it. They must put that sin away. Because it is a dishonor to the God who was nailed to a cross for them. Uh, in another book, uh, Reform Systematic Theology by Joel Beakey and Paul Smalley, um, they discuss kind of the, like, okay, we, we, we have just learned, we just, you know, read that, that we can understand Scripture. So... Uh, this quote kind of helps us to understand, well, then why is it that still some people get wrong interpretations? So uh, this is from Reform Systematic Theology. Begin quote. The great obstacle to our understanding the truths of God is not the Bible, but the sin and satanic unbelief that dominate the wicked and remain to some extent even in the godly. However, those who have the Spirit of God dwelling in them have the mind of Christ, and as believers, they are able to understand the Scriptures, especially as they press on to maturity. So in this section, uh, Beaky and Smalley kind of address uh, two, two pieces. 
the first is they say, look, uh, the, we still do face an obstacle in, in rightly interpreting God's word. And the obstacle that we face, it's, it is not that the Bible itself is somehow unclear, that the language of scripture is, is difficult or indecipherable. Now there are parts that, that even the Bible itself says are, are more difficult than others, but, but none of it is so difficult that we can't understand it. So the problem is not the Bible. The, the great obstacle, Beaky and Smalley say, to our understanding the truths of God is the, the sin and satanic unbelief that remain in us to some extent, even as uh, godly Christians. Of course, we understand that, that until the day that we are glorified, the day that we, we see Christ and are made as he is, as 1 John 3 verse 3 says, we shall see him and we shall become like he is, not God, but we shall be glorified. We shall be given glorified bodies. But until that day, we still have sin. We still have satanic unbelief that, that dwell in us, that influence us from the world. Uh, and we our own sin nature that is still being crucified in us. And, and so the, the reason or the obstacle that, that we still sometimes struggle with in our interpretation of the Bible is, is in ourselves. It is not in the Bible. So, so he, they make that clear, but then they, they also point out very, uh, neatly that those who have the spirit of God dwelling in them have the mind of Christ. Again, that's from first Corinthians chapter two. That's a very important chapter for understanding this, this topic. First Corinthians chapter two, I would recommend that you read it. Um, so they say as believers, we are able to understand the scriptures because we have the mind of Christ, like literally what it means to have the Holy Spirit is that you have the mind of Christ and therefore you can know the mind, uh, his mind, because it, it is in you. So this is, this is very, very important for our understanding of, of how or to what extent we can rightly interpret scripture. We can, we can understand the things freely given us by God. Scripture is a gift that God has given us. His self-revelation in the written word from the prophets and the apostles is a gift from him. And we may understand it uh, very thoroughly. I, you know, I won't say 100% or whatever, like I won't put a number on it, but we can understand God's word very thoroughly because the spirit of God lives in us. Luther, Martin Luther makes a really um, helpful distinction here uh, with this topic of perspicuity. He talks about um, external and internal perspicuity. So by external perspicuity, essentially what, what Luther addresses, what he's talking about is, is just the fact that uh, there's nothing about the text of scripture itself or, or even just the fact that God uses, you know, human language. There's nothing about scripture that makes it inherently indecipherable. Um, scripture on the, just from the external perspective, like as it is compiled, as it is written is, um, it is understandable. There's nothing wrong with the book itself. 
So, so when we're talking about external perspicuity, we're saying the Bible as a, you know, as a piece of literature, I guess, uh, is intelligible. It's understandable. It, 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 it is not veiled. It is not encoded in a way that must be a, a code that you break or anything like that. Uh, so that is external perspicuity. But then he goes on and he talks about um, internal perspicuity. And and this kind of relates back to what Beaky and Smalley were saying. So, But I have a quote from him because I think he can say it better than I can. So um, Luther says, if you speak of internal perspicuity, the truth is that nobody who has not the spirit of God sees a jot of what is in the scriptures. So, so to put it positively, he's saying unbelievers cannot see what is in scripture. That is the basic idea here. So, so internally we have an issue. If we do not have the spirit of God, we cannot see what is in scripture. It is only by the illumination of the Holy Spirit that sinful men can believe and uh, understand what is in Scripture. But as we said, those with the Spirit are able to understand what is in Scripture. So that that is basically the the doctrine of perspicuity. Um, so what I want to look at now are just a few uh, objections. To the doctrine, there are a few people or a few you know different groups of people that object to this doctrine of perspicuity in various ways. And here, uh, I'm going to be drawing pretty heavily on uh, the sermon that I played the clip from earlier by Kevin DeYoung, who talked about uh, perspicuity or the clarity of Scripture is the title of that sermon. Um, and uh, he he. He categorized kind of three different types of objections. And so we're going to walk through. Uh, first, we're just going to kind of quickly walk through what the objections are, and then we'll go back and I'm going to discuss uh, the scriptural rebuttal to each of these objections. Um, so the first objection that he brings up is the uh, mystical objection. And the mystical objection uh, essentially says God is too transcendent to be described by human language. So essentially they look at the Bible and they understand that the Bible is, is utterly faulty because the Bible is made up of human languages, mostly Greek and Hebrew, and then a little bit of Aramaic. Uh, but they would say each of these is a, you know, a language that's invented by fallen human beings. And because these languages are, are the product of fallen human civilization, they cannot possibly describe the God who is who stands so far above his creation. He is so transcendent. He is so utterly uh, unique and different that, that no written work can possibly uh, explain or describe him appropriately. And so we cannot understand God through the medium of Scripture because Scripture itself is a faulty medium in trying to understand God. So that is the, the mystical objection. And what's difficult about that one, and I'm going to talk about our response to it uh, in a moment, but what's difficult about this one is just that uh, it seems on the surface to be very pious, 
you know, because it, it, at least on the surface, seems to present a picture of God that is very, very high and exalted. You know, it's a God who is so high and exalted, in fact, that that we cannot even describe him with words. And that sounds like a very holy sort of mindset to have. Like, wow, God is just so, uh, so transcendent that, that we can't even explain him. Um, but I would argue, and I'm going to argue in a moment, that, that it, there is a flaw with this objection. So let's look at the next objection, though. It is the... Uh, De Young, Kevin De Young calls this the Roman Catholic objection. I would also maybe call it the elitist objection. It is the, uh, essentially, it says this uh, Scripture is too complicated and deep to be understood by lay people. So you can see this in, in Roman Catholic history. You know, there's the the magisterium, it is the whole system, you know, of, of Pope, cardinals, bishops, priests, uh, parish priests, you know, all the, this whole system of, of, of professional Christians, you know, essentially. Uh, and they, throughout Roman Catholic history, they reserved scripture for themselves. In fact, for, you know, up until the 1500s when, you know, there were other attempts earlier, but the, the main effort to translate scripture into the vernacular, and, you know, for Martin Luther, it was German. It was also happening in English in England. But um, until about the 1500s, the Bible was in Latin um, because specifically because the the uh, magisterium, that whole system of church leadership did not want the Bible in the hands of lay people because they believed that scripture was just simply too complicated and it was too deep and, and you had to be really, really smart to understand it and to interpret it and to apply it. And they feared, you know, they, uh, let's credit them and just say that they really believe scripture was important. And so, you know, they were they were very concerned that it would be interpreted correctly. And so they didn't want to put it in the hands of uh, people who might get it wrong. Let's just say that they didn't have any, you know, extra bad motives. They just had the, the foolish idea that that the people couldn't interpret correctly. Uh, but that was the basic idea. You know, scripture is so complicated uh, that the average person, the lay people cannot possibly uh, interpret it correctly. So, uh, you know, essentially they're just saying scripture's not clear and it takes lots of extra training and all of this to understand it properly. So then the, uh, third objection that, that pastor De Young brings up is the, what he calls the, uh, pluralistic objection. And, and essentially that one, uh, asks this question. It asks if scripture's so clear, uh, then, then why are there so many interpretations? And, and on the surface, this seems like a fair question. And, and honestly, it, it is a fair question. But we're going to talk for a few moments uh, just about why it does not prove, you know, what they want it to prove. This, this objection does not prove that, that scripture is unclear. So we're going to talk about why that is. So uh, let's go back and we're going to walk back through each one of those. And we're going to talk about just the scriptural response or the scriptural reality um, rebuttal to 
each of these objections. So the mystical objection, it is the, the uh, just to refresh you, uh, the mystical objection said that God is too transcendent to be described by human language. Uh, the problem, the main you know, huge problem with this one is that while it seems like it, you know, exalts God really highly and, and says that God is just so high that, that we cannot possibly know him or, or at least describe him with human language in the way, uh, in a way that is accurate, you know, so it sounds like it has this really high view of God. Uh, in fact, what it does is it rejects God's ability to reveal himself. So we understand scripture is God's self-revelation. Scripture is God revealing himself, telling us about who he is, what his character is, what is right and wrong based on his character, his plan of salvation for the world. You know, it is God revealing himself, his plan, his will uh, to his people. That is what God's word is. And what mysticism does or the, the mystical objection does is it says God even though he's so great, he cannot reveal himself to us. He's not capable of doing that through the written word. And the Christian response to this is, is simply that God is able to do that. And God did do that. And we have at least one, probably more uh, passages in scripture that make very, very clear that God specifically ordained to use the written word specifically for that purpose. So uh, John chapter 20, verses 30 to 31. This is towards the end of the gospel of John. And it is, uh, it is John writing kind of the purpose statement for why he wrote this book. So he says this. Now Jesus did many other signs in the presence of the disciples, which are not written in this book. But these are written so that you may believe that Jesus is the Christ, the Son of God, and that by believing you may have life in his name. So what does John say? The reason that John wrote this book was to reveal Jesus Christ as the Son of God. So, so scripture itself makes very clear that it was written, it was inspired, it was given by God so that we would believe that Jesus is the Christ, the Son of God. So the God God tells us he, he uses the written word for his self-revelation. Therefore, God is able to reveal himself by the written word. This is utterly important. This completely uh, rejects the mystical objection and says, look, yes, God is great. God is so great, in fact, that God can reveal himself to us. That is what we say in response to the mystics. Then we have the uh, Roman Catholic or elitist objection that essentially just said, uh, scripture is too complicated and deep to be understood by lay people. It is not, it is not clear uh, it cannot be understood by the average person. And uh, for this one, I have another uh, Charles Hodge quote from his systematic theology. Um, in this particular section, he's he's just writing about uh, the fact that when you read through Scripture, what you'll notice uh, as you go throughout it is that the books of Scripture are addressed uh, 
to the people of God. They're not, you know, the books are not addressed toward, you know, uh, an exalted class of sort of elite interpreters. But instead, the, the books are written to the community at large. So, you know, you have a, a, a letter written to the church at Galatia, or you have a, a, a letter written, you know, you see the book of Deuteronomy. It is a, the whole book basically is a big sermon that was delivered to the whole nation of Israel. It wasn't, you know, Moses didn't gather the elite, you know, most spiritual dudes into the tent, you know, and tell them, hey, you know, this stuff is really complicated. So I'm just going to tell you guys and then you just kind of lead the people. You know, that would be the magisterium. That is not what God did. God spoke through the prophet Moses to the whole nation of Israel. And so uh, what we see is that that God did not address scripture itself. It's not just to these elites, but it is instead to the, the people. So Charles Hodge, he says this, it is the people who are addressed. To them are directed these profound discussions of Christian doctrine and these comprehensive expositions of Christian duty. They are everywhere assumed to be competent to understand what is written and are everywhere required to believe and obey what thus came from the inspired messengers of Christ. They were not referred to any other authority from which they were to learn the true import of these inspired instructions. So he, he just lays it out very clearly. Look, God, God gave the, the contents of scripture to the people. They were, he, I love this line. He says they were everywhere assumed to be competent to understand what is written. So God himself, he, he, uh, he, and God doesn't assume anything, you know, because God knows everything. So God, by definition, can't make assumptions because assumptions are sort of educated guesses. Generally is how we understand assumptions. God doesn't make those. God knows every person whom he desires to interpret scripture can do so. And who does he give scripture to? He gives it to the people at large. And he does so because he knows that they will, every person that he wants will be filled with his Holy Spirit and they will be made capable. They will be made competent to understand what is written. So uh, I think this is, again, I, I, re- I referenced uh, Deuteronomy chapter 30. Uh, as I said, it's it's at the, towards the end of the book of Deuteronomy and uh, all the way up to the to that chapter and that chapter included, it's all one big sermon. It's an address that is given to uh, the nation of Israel right before they are about to cross over into the promised land. Uh, They are renewing their covenant with God. They are hearing the law uh, taught to them again so that they would remember it and apply it. And here in Deuteronomy chapter 30, at the end uh, of this big long sermon, uh, Moses says this, For this commandment that I command you today is not too hard for you, neither is it far off. It is not in heaven that you should say, who will ascend to heaven for us and bring it to us that we may hear it and do it. So what what is Moses saying? He's saying, look, this is not too hard. You can understand this. You can do this. This is, this is something that is within your grasp as an average Israelite. And so uh, it is just made abundantly clear. 
that that the the sort of elitist view of scripture that only a set group of people are capable of interpreting it that is a rejection of, of the fact that every christian has the holy spirit and if every christian has the holy spirit then we are all made capable of understanding god's word this is utterly important and it means that we can no longer abdicate the responsibility to study and know god's word then we come to the third uh, objection. Oh, sorry. If you're watching the video, I accidentally just put up a slide that you don't need to see yet. That'll come in a moment. Uh, the pluralistic objection. Uh, I have a few problems with this objection. Um, just so you can for sure remember what it was. The pluralistic objection essentially asks the question of, you know, if scripture's so darn clear... Why is it that there are so many different interpretations? Uh, again, like I said, this this on the surface at least kind of sounds like a fair question, but really uh, I, I have a few issues with it. Uh, I don't think that it is it proves what it sets out to prove, you know, because most people when they say that, they kind of they usually tend to go on to sort of argue for doctrinal agnosticism. You know, they, they essentially, they just want to argue like, well, we can't really know anything doctrinally, at least we can't really know what the Bible says, because look, all these people have been arguing about all these different biblical topics for thousands of years, and we haven't come to unanimous conclusion on this. And therefore, you know, we should probably just set all these things aside. That tends to be really the theme of what they're actually getting at. And the problem with that is that they are not consistent with that. You know, they don't apply that standard to any other area of their life. You know, if unanimous agreement is your standard for belief, then you cannot consistently believe anything. There is nothing, nothing on earth that people unanimously agree about. Nothing. Like, scientists do not have unanimous agreement about anything. You know, like, they're, they, they you know, have general consensus, but there are always those outliers. There are always those groups of people who are like, no, we see, we, we think it's this way, or we, we differ and we think it's this way. So, so for the pluralistic objection to hold true, you know, essentially what they're saying is like, look, there's not unanimous agreement about these doctrinal points. And therefore, you know, that proves that scripture must not be clear. Like, no, like apply that to science then. Like, does the fact that that two groups of scientists disagree on, you know, a, some point of science, does that prove that there's not a right answer? Obviously not. Like, obviously, one group is right or, you know, and, and therefore the other group is wrong or possibly neither group is right. You know, possibly uh, both groups are proposing incorrect answers, but. Uh, but it definitely doesn't prove that there's no right answer. So, so that's the first problem is that people who, you know, use this pluralistic objection, they don't apply it consistently. They don't, they don't expect absolute unanimous agreement in any other area of life for them to adopt a belief of some sort. <laughs> you know, they, they generally tend to look around at things and they they evaluate them themselves or they evaluate, you know, who is putting forth which argument, which argument makes the most sense, and then they adopt it. They believe it. And, and people 
by using this pluralistic objection, they kind of abdicate the responsibility that is placed on every person to evaluate scripture and to to apply it as your rule of faith, to to believe what it says, to to uh, examine it, you know, to be a Berean who who uh, goes to the word and, and examines what it has to say and, and compares, you know, the the different passages of scripture and determines their theology. That is what we're commanded to do. So, uh, I, I, another thing that I think is, is funny about the pluralistic objection is that it totally disregards like the clear expectation in scripture that there would be false teaching. Scripture itself makes, makes absolutely clear that Christians should expect to encounter false teaching. We should expect to encounter false, you know, divergent opinions of doctrine. Like, and you could argue, in fact, that the, the uh, existence of false doctrines authenticates Scripture because Scripture itself predicts that there will be false teachers who will promote false doctrines. So, so Scripture predicts it it's happening you know so so the the fact that it exists the fact that there are divergent opinions on different doctrinal points in no way proves that that scripture itself is not clear it, all it means is that there are false teachers at the very least there's false teachers or uh, misguided individuals who are putting forward uh, ideas that are wrong but there are, that doesn't mean that there aren't truths to be found. So First uh, Peter chapter 2, verses 1 and 2 talk about this idea of, of false teachers and, and heresy. So it says, First uh, Peter chapter 2, verses 1 and 2 say, But false prophets also arose among the people, just as there will be false teachers among you, who will secretly bring in destructive heresies, even denying the master who bought them bringing upon themselves swift destruction. So Peter, you know, makes it abundantly clear that that there will be false teachers, there will be false doctrine, but the existence of that false doctrine does not negate the reality of biblical truth. And therefore the duty of every Christian is to search the scriptures to find biblical truth so that we may spot the counterfeits, we may reject the counterfeits when they arise. So to, to kind of conclude, uh, I just want to talk for a moment about, you know, what does scripture say about itself? Scripture, scripture does speak about itself, and so we should take that into account given that we believe Scripture is inherent, or inherent, inerrant, infallible. It is inspired. So what does it say about itself? Well, probably the most famous verse uh, that, that is in this sort of genre of Scripture speaking about itself is Second uh, Timothy chapter 3, verses 16 and 17. They say this, all scripture is breathed out by God and profitable for teaching, for reproof, for correction, and for training in righteousness, that the man of God may be complete, equipped for every good work. 
there's a there's a truth that is implicit in this verse that we must recognize. You see, I think we all sort of know this is the primary verse that comes up when people want to talk about the inspiration of Scripture, the fact that Scripture comes from God. It is not sourced from man, but instead it is from heaven. It comes down from heaven, from God. Uh, and we see that very clearly. All Scripture is breathed out by God. You know, So we understand that this passage strongly uh, supports the doctrine of inspiration, but I think it also just as strongly supports the doctrine of perspicuity. Why? Well, because it says that all scripture is profitable for teaching, reproof, correction, and training in righteousness. What does that mean? Well, that's saying, look, scripture, uh, it, it can be used, it ought to be used, it must be used for teaching, reproof, correction, training. Well, the word cannot teach, correct, reproof, or train if it's unintelligible. We must understand Scripture for it to serve any of those purposes. If Scripture serves the purpose of teaching or correcting or reproving or training, then we must understand what Scripture says. So this passage, just like it supports inspiration, it also supports the doctrine of perspicuity, that, that scripture is clear. It is plain. The Bible is a plain book, as, as Charles Hodge says. The Bible can be understood by us. When we are filled with the Holy Spirit, we have all that we need to understand God's word. And, and that's why, I, I honestly, I think that if you, you know, reject perspicuity, whether you do it kind of implicitly or explicitly, if, if you reject the doctrine of perspicuity, then you can't consistently hold the doctrine of inerrancy because the, uh, the doctrine of inerrancy says that the scripture is without error. There are no errors in the Bible. Well, how can you assert that there are no errors in the Bible if you aren't even sure that you can understand what's in the Bible? Like if you can't interpret scripture, then you can't say whether or not there are errors in it. So scripture has to first be understandable before we can say that it is inerrant. And inerrancy is is one that, you know, any, you know, legitimate professing Christian would say, yes, I believe in inerrancy. They might not have ever heard of the doctrine of perspicuity, but they would say, yes, I believe in the inerrancy of scripture. Well, they can't believe in inerrancy if they reject perspicuity. That's very important. So this kind of brings us just to the, the bottom line of, of the podcast. And, and, and here is like the main reason that I, I wanted to make this episode um, was just that I, I think that too often Christians pretend that scripture is unclear in order to avoid what it actually says. And as Christians, we have to hold each other accountable and responsible for this. And we need to, you know, if, if we do it, we need to repent of it because I, I fear that, you know, in most instances, especially with these kind of cultural issues or sin issues, uh, some of the more con controversial doctrinal issues, the reason that we, we act like scripture is unclear it is not because we genuinely, you know, have an intellectual, uh, you know, uh, debate 
raging inside of us where we really, you know, have tried to study it every, you know, these topics in depth, and we just are not able to come to an honest intellectual conclusion. I don't think that that's usually what's happening. I think that most often when we act like scripture is unclear, it's because we are afraid of the, you know, the judgment or the, the anger of the world that we know will come when we say what God says. We know that when we say the things that God has said, when we call sin, sin, when we call good, good, when we, you know, speak strongly that that a particular doctrinal point is true, we know that when we do that, we're going to face opposition. And so, so often we, we have this temptation to, to rather than speak clearly because scripture is clear. Instead, what we do is we, we act like scripture is unclear and we withhold what we know to be true because we, we don't want to have conflict. And to some extent, you know, the desire to avoid conflict is a good desire, but there, there's a difference, I think, between the godly desire to avoid conflict and the ungodly desire to avoid persecution. And I think really what this boils down to is this is this mindset is just antithetical to the boldness that Christians are called to. We are called to be bold and to say what God says. We, we have this saying where, you know, where scripture speaks, God speaks. Well, if that's true, if God has spoken in scripture and if scripture is intelligible, if scripture is clear, then we can have no excuse for not boldly affirming what scripture says, but you, you won't be bold. You won't be confident about what God says. If you, if you don't think you can actually understand what God has said, but if if Psalm 19 is true, when it says that the testimony of the Lord is sure making wise, the simple, then we have no other option but to simply do and believe and proclaim what God's word says. Because God's word, it's not foggy. It's not vague. It is sure. The testimony of the Lord is sure. And it makes the simple wise. You and I, by the illumination of the Holy Spirit, will become wise as we study and reflect upon the testimony of the Lord, the word of God. And as we do that, we have a duty to proclaim it to the world around us, to proclaim it within our household, to proclaim it in our church, to proclaim it on the street corner. You know, if you're a preacher like me, uh, if in your workplace, we have a duty. This is God's word. We do not hide it. We do not put our light under a bushel. We do not make the salt unsalty. We are called to be the salt of the world. But when we act like what God has revealed is foggy or indistinct and we cannot understand it and it's indecipherable, we lose our saltiness. We must not lose our saltiness. So thank you so much for listening to this episode of the podcast. Really grateful that you would tune in. I would encourage you, invite you, uh, share it with a friend. 
you can do that through YouTube. You can do it through whatever podcast app you like to use. You can do it on Facebook. Uh, you can find me, follow me on Twitter at TJ Lucasen. Again, thank you so much for uh, tuning in. Really grateful that you would spend the time. Uh, have a great rest of remainder of your day. 